Well, hello, Park South Loop and Park Bridgeport. I'm excited to jump into God's Word with us today. Uh, because we're not in the regular gathered church on a regular Sunday, I've, and I'm delivering this message over video, and most of you are be watching this in your living rooms and in your family rooms, what I've done is I've put together an outline for you that you can follow along with. And uh, this is a little bit, my presentation today is going to be a little bit different than I normally give a sermon, but I think it'll help make it a little bit more engaging for you at home. So the outlines you can find if you download, if you're on the YouTube page and you're watching this, actually there's a link to it in the description of the video. Uh, and those that are members of Park South Loop and Park Bridgeport have been emailed the outline. And what you'll be able to do is actually fill in the blanks as we go through the text today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And so if you've got your Bibles at home, go ahead and open those up. Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to begin in verse 22. So I'll give you a second to get your Bibles out and open that up. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. And as you get there, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray right now that as your people dig into your word, that you would powerfully work in their hearts. God, we come before you this morning as those who are certainly going through a trial. God, we recognize that apart from you, that we are directionless in the midst of this trial. And so we need to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for your people, that they would have open hearts, ready to receive what you have to speak to them this morning, and that we would be a changed people, that whatever we hear from you, we would then put into practice. Our hearts would be changed, our minds would be changed, and we'd brought, be brought into conformity with your will. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we are certainly in a unique time period. Uh, as a church family and as a globe, frankly, we're facing a crisis that none of us have ever gone through, at least in our lives. The world's gone through similar time periods before this, but none of us have been through anything quite of this magnitude when it comes to Sunday mornings. Every one of our lives has been flipped upside down. Our rhythms have been changed. Our, uh, our freedom to even go outside and do the regular things that we do throughout the week have all been changed. And I know if you're like me and you're in the conversations that I've been in throughout this week, there is a lot of fear about the unknowns that are circulating throughout the world as well as throughout the church. When will we be able to get back to our lives? When will we be able to gather as a church again? What will happen to the stock market? These are actual fears and questions that are coming throughout every person going through this together. The, the enemy we face, the trial that we're going through, is a trial that knows no boundaries. It knows no borders. It has no division. It faces every person on this globe the same way. And the question I've been wrestling with and the one I want to try to address this morning with us is what makes a Christian unique going through this trial? Every person, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, wherever you live on this globe, you're going to be going through this together. Humanity is in this together. But what makes a Christian unique in the midst of this trial? Do Christians have anything to offer that is unique and powerful to go through a moment like this? Is Christianity unique today? You know, I want you to think about that personally before we go any further. Is your faith making you unique among all your peers and among your family members and among your neighbors as you go through this trial? Is there anything different about you? Is there anything different about the, the way you hold yourself and the way you cling to the promises of Jesus as you navigate this moment? 
Is there anything markedly different about your mindset, about your hope, about your words, about the way you fall asleep at night, about your understanding? As a Christian and one who is guided by the word of God, is there anything different about your temperament, the way that you're loving others, the way that you're caring for people, caring for your neighbors and your loved ones? Is there anything different about being in your presence in this moment? There ought to be. The reality is that in times of crisis and trial, this is when the faith of Christianity shines at its brightest. And every person who claims to be a follower of Christ ought to have that on the forefront of their minds. And so today what I want to do is I want to give us a series of reminders. I want us to be encouraged by the word of God to allow God's word to actually shape how we see ourselves in the midst of this trial, to actually give us some kind of fuel to think about this rightly, but not just to think about it, to actually behave in a way that's becoming of the promises that we claim we live by. So where do we turn in this moment? We've got to go to the text, to the scriptures, to find hope in the midst of our storm, to find anchoring in the midst of our storm. It's not just that Christians avoid trials, it's that we endure them in an entirely different way. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14, starting in verses 22, and it's this fascinating story about where Jesus sends his disciples on a boat into the middle of a storm, and then he walks on water to them in the middle of that storm. Now for a bit of context, context is very important, this story in Matthew takes place right after the famous miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Now that's pretty important for us today because one of the key lessons we get from the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus has control over nature. He has control over nature. He, he is not bound by the same limitations that every other human being that's ever lived. He was able to multiply food to feed many, many, many people. In that context, we then get to the very next moment in the story in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, picking up in verses 22, we read this in verses 22 and 23. Immediately, now that's right after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Now pause there for just a moment. Here in these opening verses of this story of Jesus walking on water, we find something very interesting about the character and the person of Jesus Christ. And what we discover is very compelling and noteworthy for us in this moment. Jesus has just got done feeding the 5,000. His popularity in terms of this part in the Gospel of Matthew is as, as at an all-time high, both among the people of Israel as well as among his disciples who have just witnessed something that had left them completely stunned. He, they love him. They adore him. And and what he does in the middle of when things are at his all-time greatest in terms of his public ministry is he dismisses the crowds, he sends the disciples away, and he goes up on a mountain to be alone with the Father. For Jesus, the fundamental basis of his joy and satisfaction and the expectation that rooted his identity of who he was, was his relationship with the Father. And in his human life, we oftentimes find Jesus drawing away from the crowds, drawing away from the busyness of life, away from his public ministry in order to be alone with the Father. 
And here's the first lesson I want to draw out from this. Mature faith requires intentional time with God alone. Mature faith requires intentional time with God alone. Do you know how to be alone with God? Do you know how to sit quietly and remove the distractions from your life that us in our 21st century Western mindset know how to fill ourselves with every distraction you could possibly think of? Do you know how to clear the clutter from your life to sit and be alone with God? This is something that us in our Western church are frankly just terrible at. And I think it's one of the reasons that many of us have very weak faith. We go through the motions of what Western Christianity says the church ought to be about, and we forget that at the end of the day, it's about having an intimate relationship with the Father by being alone with Him. There's a very famous book written by a man named St. John of the Cross, classic work, um, written, it's called Dark Night of the Soul. And one of the primary themes that he explores in that book is this concept of intimacy and being alone with God as Father. And throughout the book, he develops this idea of being a very early kind of beginner Christian and then tracing the journey of growing in your faith and becoming mature and more mature over time. And, and what's the fruit and what's the expectations that happen in a life that's growing in maturity and faith? And I want to read this to you. He says in this book, Dark Night of the Soul, Since then, the conduct of these beginners, talking about those who are newer in their faith, since then, the conduct of these beginners upon the way of God is ignoble. That's kind of lowly and virtueless and still has much to do with their love of themselves and their own inclination. God desires to lead them further. He seeks to bring them out of that lower kind of love to a higher degree of love for him, to free them from the lower exercises and to lead them to a kind of spiritual exercise wherein they can commune with him more abundantly and are freed more completely from imperfections. For John, St. John of the Cross, he, he considered our busyness and our distractions an inability to just be quiet with God, an imperfection in our faith. Church, I don't know if in this trial of ours that we're in right now, God's got a hold of you yet. I do know that he's flipped your world upside down. I do know that he's taken away a number of the things that my guess is likely have kept you distracted. If I can speak for myself, he's taken a lot of those things away from me. And, and now here we are, and, and our lives all look very different. Depending on what you're going through right now, everyone's life looks very different, but I know it looks different than what it was a week or even two weeks ago. And one of the temptations we're going to have is that now that our life is flipped upside down and we can't keep ourselves busy with everything else we were keeping ourselves busy with, everything else that was distracting us, now the temptation is to be alone at home and yet busier than ever, scrolling through every news feed, listening to every editorial, calling every person on the phone, and all we're doing is we traded one set of busyness for another set of busyness and we're missing the moment. Church, I want to exhort you, I want, to, I want you to look at Jesus right now. He drew away from the crowds, and he, he got alone with God the Father. I don't want you to miss what God might be forming in us. I don't know God's particular reasons for sending this pandemic. I know he has his reasons, but I know that if we don't learn in the new quietness of being at home how to get alone with God, how to train ourselves to be alone and to spend time with the Father, we will miss everything that God wants to form in us right now.
You've got to learn how to be alone with him. Now watch what happens next. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. Jesus has been alone with the Father. Meanwhile, the disciples had been sent out on the lake. But the boat by this time, verse 24, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. For the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Pause there. Now, we're told in the story that the disciples are out on this lake and a storm comes over the lake. And we're told that they're beaten by the waves. Now, this text is designed to get us to understand that they are on the face, in the face of death. These are trained fishermen who are in the midst of a storm that is threatening to capsize their entire boat. And they're afraid. They're afraid that they're out there and somehow Jesus has sent them out there on, in mistake. And now they're about to drown. Meanwhile, the one whom they love, their master, is out on the land. And the question they've got to be asking is, why would Jesus send us into the midst of a storm? Perhaps that's what we can ask ourselves as we read this text. Why would Jesus, the one who just multiplied all the food, the one who has control over the elements themselves, send his disciples into a storm? Here's the second lesson for us. Jesus sent the disciples into the storm for a purpose. He sent his disciples into the storm for a purpose. What was that purpose? Jesus was trying to increase their faith. Jesus was seeking to grow and mature them in their faith and to strengthen their confidence in what they were to believe about who he was. And to do that, he literally pushes them into a storm. He sends them out into the storm knowing that they're going to be afraid in the storm and knowing that he's going to have to intervene and intercede in the midst of that storm. Is God unwise to send his disciples into a storm where they think their boat's going to be capsized? By no means. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's using the storm in the disciples' life to form something new in them. Let me remind you of a few other places in Scripture that teach us this lesson. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7, read this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that, that, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, God, God uses storms in our life to form something new in you. He sends us out on purpose. What this means for us right now is that while we're hunkered in our homes and while the world is trying to weather this storm, God has a purpose in the midst of it. And what you ought to be doing as a Christian is spending a lot of time with God the Father asking that exact question. And you can ask it on a macro level. What are you trying to do for the world and to the church? That is a good question to ask, and we need to wrestle with that as an entire church. But I don't want to let you miss the moment of asking God, what is he forming in you? What about your relationship with God and that personal intimacy you ought to have with the Father? Why did he send you into this storm? Here are these 12 men beaten by the waves, half drowned and scared and alone, and then in the midst of the storm, Jesus walks to them 
on the water. Now, I want you to get this moment correct. When the Bible records this moment, this is not to be over-spiritualized in any way. This is an actual physical moment in human history. Just as Jesus fed 5,000 people, he literally and physically walked on the water in the midst of a storm that was causing his disciples to fear that they were going to drown in a boat. He walks out calmly to them. It's interesting, the language that's actually used in the Bible, the original language, is this language of walking around on the water. It's almost like he's casually taking a stroll by his disciples in the midst of the storm. He's not worried. In the midst of the storm, the disciples are panicking that their boat's going to go down. They don't know how they're going to survive the moment. They don't know what it's going to be like when the storm ends. And there's Jesus, not worried. The same waves are all around him that are around the disciples. And Jesus is not worried because he's in full control. Here's the next lesson. Knowing that Jesus is in control changes everything. Knowing that Jesus is in control changes everything. The waves rise and fall at his command. And viruses rise and fall at his command. Look, there's two ways to go through life. On the one hand, you can go through life believing that there is no God and that ultimately Jesus is not in control of everything that happens. And if that's the way you go through your life, then what you're ultimately believing in this world is that the ultimate rule, the thing that guides the universe is pure chance. It's pure chance. It's random molecules and atoms behaving as random molecules and atoms behave. And the ultimate destiny of all that takes place in this universe is up to sheer Chance, and I will confess to you, if that is the way this universe is structured, and if that is truly how it is, then every one of us has every reason to fear in a moment like this. Because frankly, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know anything about what could happen in your life or where any of this is going or what the meaning of it is. But if Jesus is in control, well, that's a whole different story. If the one who walked through the middle of a storm calmly is in control of this storm that we're in, the same way he was in control of that storm that the disciples were in, then we have a lot of hope, don't we? We, we can be confident that the one who is in control of all things is not worried in a moment like this. We're in safe hands. We're in the loving hands of the Father. Those are good hands to be in. When speaking about this, the writer of Hebrews, he writes this in Hebrews chapter 1, a verse that I quote often to our church. Hebrews 1, 13, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Chance is not in control. Jesus is in control. The response of the disciples here is worth looking at carefully. Now, they're learning this. They, they were in the midst of learning that Jesus was in control. They didn't fully understand it just yet. But they were just like we would be if we were the disciples stuck in a boat in the middle of a storm. They were nervous. And all of a sudden, they see Jesus, their master, literally doing something that no one had ever witnessed before. He comes to them walking on water. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a storm quite like this, but I can tell you this. It's not easy to see what's going on around you when waves are coming in on your face, when rain is coming down and when you're scared. Imagine these disciples on a boat. The waves are coming over the side of the boat. They're being slapped in the face by water. They're trying to scream to each other across the boat. 
And they look out and they, they're not certain what they see. In fact, the text tells us they thought it was a ghost. They, they can't physically see the details of who the person is that's walking on the water. And then they hear an old familiar voice say, take heart, it is I. When the disciples couldn't physically see Jesus, they recognized the sound of his voice speaking to them in the middle of the storm, saying, take heart. That language, quite literally, it means be emboldened, be filled with courage. And then Jesus says, it is I. And the original language reads, ego e me, I am. In the middle of the storm, Jesus walks to them and he takes the name of God. I am who I am. That's the name of God given in the Old Testament. And he says, be emboldened, be filled with courage in the middle of the storm, disciples, because I am. Here's the next point. Faith requires more than knowledge. It requires intimacy. These disciples had an incredible intimacy with the Lord Jesus. That though they couldn't perfectly see him, and, and, and they frankly thought what they were seeing with their eyes was a ghost, they had been with him. They knew his voice. So that when he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, they recognized the voice of their master speaking to them, and it actually filled them with the courage. Now, I want to ask you, do you know the voice of Jesus? It's one thing to go to church every week. It's another thing to know his voice. And this is not something that just happens accidentally. It doesn't just happen because you go to church every week. It doesn't happen because you take the title Christian. It happens because you develop an authentic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Can you hear him in the middle of the storm that we're in saying, take heart, be encouraged, be emboldened, I am can you be alone with God and hear him literally speak those same exact words to you? We have so many voices coming to us from every direction. Throughout our week, throughout our days, we fill our lives and we fill our ears with every voice and every idea. And in the midst of the clutter and the chaos of a thousand voices vying for your attention, can you hear that precious sound of the voice of Jesus saying, take heart. Be encouraged. Be filled with courage. I am. You will grow in this over time as a follower of Christ. But in this moment of kind of being isolated from each other, in this moment of being forced to change your rhythms, I want to challenge you. If you don't know how to sit and be alone and, and just spend time hearing from God, you need to learn how to do it now. Don't miss the moment to turn your phone off, to turn off the TV, to put down the newspaper, to, to get away for a moment and actually listen. The Christian faith is more than a set of rules. It's more than a set of principles. It's a relationship with a God who desires for you to know him intimately, to be able to hear his voice in the middle of the storm. You will grow in this over time, but it takes practice. And you've got to love Peter's response here. In the middle of the storm, fearing that he's seeing a ghost, Peter's almost like a little puppy dog wagging his tail in excitement, thinking that he's seeing Jesus on the other side of the boat. His master's come home. Listen to Peter's response, verses 28 and 29. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, 
walks on water and comes to Jesus. As soon as Peter comes to his senses, now this is what's amazing. As soon as Peter realizes that Jesus is on the other side of the boat, he doesn't care about the storm. All he wants to do is go be with Jesus. And he gets out, literally, Peter does something that no human being had ever done before him. He gets out of the boat and begins to walk by faith to Jesus. He's not afraid of the trial. He's not afraid of the storms. He sees Jesus, and that's enough for him. Now read verse 30. He's beginning to walk. But when he saw, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. In the midst of demonstrating spiritual courage, in the midst of living by faith, in the midst of walking in the middle of a storm through waves and looking at Jesus and hearing his voice, suddenly Peter gets distracted. He's, he's focused on Jesus. He wants to be looking at Jesus. But all of a sudden, the size of the waves and the strength of the wind become bigger in his sight than Jesus who's standing them, beckoning, beckoning him to come walk to him. He starts to walk by faith and then looks around him and realizes the sheer craziness of actually living a life of faith. And he begins to fear and he begins to doubt. He second guesses himself. And here's the next point. When we, we sink, when our vision of the waves becomes bigger than our vision of Jesus. We sink when our vision of the waves becomes bigger than our vision of Jesus. Walking by faith in seasons of abundance as well as seasons of trial is not easy. That's what faith is. Faith is walking in a way that is beyond what you can see, but trusting in what you can't see with your own eyes oftentimes, the promises of Jesus and what he said is true about your life. Faith is looking at the size of the waves or the strength of the enemy or the magnitude of a virus or the volatility of the economic markets, or a poor health diagnosis, or the loss of a job, or the loss of a loved one, or living in a broken family, or living with an addiction, or a habit, or a problem that you just can't see the end to. You name the wave. And faith is seeing the size of the wave, and then seeing Jesus as greater than the size of that wave, and seeing him calling you, come to me through that wave that you're walking through. Just keep your eyes on me and keep walking to me. He knows you. He knows the waves. He knows the trials you're in. He knows your brokenness. Keep in mind, Jesus was tempted in every way that we were tempted with, and yet he was without fault and without sin. He's been there. Peter, in this moment of desperation, realizes that he's drowning. He's taken his eyes off Jesus. He's made the fatal mistake that every one of us makes. He's seeing the size of the waves. He's thinking this is all too much. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink. And then he does what every Christian ought to do in that moment. He cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, take my hand. He picks Peter up. He says, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter is just like us, isn't he? Sometimes when we're in the midst of a trial and the waves seem to get so big, we take our eyes off the one who's made all the promises in the first place. We take our eyes off Jesus. We begin to put our trust in how well we can navigate the waves. And when we do that, we begin to sink just like everyone else. 
The storm we're in right now is going to last exactly as long as Jesus commands it to last. It will last not one millisecond longer and not one millisecond shorter. He is the one who is over everything. It's not, it's not out of his control. As the storm rages on, the waves will get higher. The wind will blow with greater strength and the voices of those calling for your attention will get louder. The markets may get lower and all those things that are of this world that quite frankly we have been depending on and trusting in secretly may give way. And yet, and yet, that does not mean that Jesus is not in control. He's fully in control. So where can we possibly look when the storm seems out of our control? We've got to look to the one who walks on water, who navigates the entire thing on our behalf. We've got to call out like Peter did, Lord, save me because I don't know where to turn and I need you who is in control to pick me up and give me a new hope and confidence for what the future holds. And I want to tell you about this person who walked on water to the disciples. Jesus is more than just a martyr. At the center of all human history stands a cross. That is what the entire human history navigates around, a cross where one man died. The death of Jesus was not just a martyr's death on a cross for a belief system. The Bible tells us that Jesus' death on the, death on the cross was payment. It was payment to God, payment for our sin, for our rebellion to God. Because of what we owed, there was an actual debt to a holy God because of our rebellion to him. And yet God did something about that. He didn't just leave us in the chaos of our own sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross. And when he shed his blood, that was considered the necessary payment to forgive you for your sin. And when you choose to believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of, of sins, what happens is that God unites you and your soul to himself. And there are no words that can fully explain this. You can hear it from me preaching it right now, but, but to actually experience it means you have to trust in Jesus Christ and choose to believe in him through faith. And when you do that, you don't just enter into a religion. You enter into a relationship with a God who says, I know you, I have promises that I've made for you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And literally the old begins to fade away. And God begins to rewrite your entire vision for your life. The things you once trusted in to help you navigate storms begin to fade away and you begin to realize those won't support you. That there is a greater one who stands and he is enough for you. You know, one day this coronavirus will pass, but it won't be the last storm that we endure. Life is full of storms. And, and frankly, only Jesus is large enough to weather each and every storm that we'll go through in this life. He alone, not religion, not spiritualism, not self-help, not your muscles and not your paycheck. It's Jesus and it's Jesus alone. You're either clinging to the one that's in control or you're out of control. Those are the two options. And Jesus invites you just as he invited Peter to get out of the boat and to walk towards him. He's enough to navigate this. I want you to see what happens at the end of the story. It's quite amazing. Peter's walked on water. He's learned this lesson about not doubting. And then it says in verse 32, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Here's the final lesson I want us to take from this text. A weathered storm 
ought to produce fresh worship. A weathered storm ought to produce fresh worship. Church, we're going to be in this for a few weeks at least, perhaps longer than that. But I know that God never sends his bride, the church, into a storm without a purpose. And I'm asking the question, what's going to be new in us when all this is said and done? When the wind ceases, when the schools reopen and the stock markets begin to tick back up again, when we get to gather once more as a church, how will you be marked differently because you went through the storm? I think if you ask yourself that question today, that will help you navigate how you actually navigate the storm while you're in it right now. What might Christ be forming in you? How are we going to be able to gather together as a church when this is all sudden done and sit together and magnify the name of Jesus Christ saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, as I close, I want to remind us of something very important. And this is just by way of a closing important word. While this is certainly a powerful moment for us in the world, this is not a unique moment in history. The church has been in this before. Over the last 2,000 years of church history, Christians have stepped into pandemics with boldness and with courage, with steadfastness and hope, and frankly, with the strength and the love of Jesus Christ. Time and time again, when you open the history books, what you find is that in moments like this, it's the church that takes the front page. It's the church that consistently steps in with boldness and with love, and the world always takes notice. I could tell you countless stories of this, but let me tell you one of them. In the year 250 AD, a pandemic swept through Rome. At its height, it was taking 5,000 lives a day, far worse than what we're in right now. The way Christians responded in that moment won many people throughout the Roman Empire to faith in Jesus. Now, let me read to you a quote from the, what was written about the way Christians responded in that pandemic by a man named Dionysus, who was Bishop of Alexandria at the time. He writes this, Most of our Christian brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Christians throughout history have responded to pandemics in very powerful ways. What will history write about us? Let me pray. Father, we need your boldness. We need to hear your sweet voice saying, take heart, it is I. And so wherever we are this morning, Whatever we're doing today, I pray for your church. I pray for all who will listen to this message, that we would look to Jesus Christ in fresh, new, powerful ways, that you would fill us with such a strength of conviction about our faith, that we are changed, that we would navigate this with joy, that we would navigate this with a power that says that we truly believe the promises that have been made to us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.